Hey cheap astronomers, one of you fine folk nominated me for a Parsec award, so I thought I'd make my Parsec submission this week's podcast, since, let's face it, I have an Ice Cube's chance in a supernova of actually winning. Now, to comply with the rules, I have to develop an audio submission, which is not more than 10 minutes, and includes a 30 second intro, which is this. Excerpt 1 Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy, and this is The Quantum Vacuum or Not. You will often hear people say that the apparent vacuum of empty space-time is actually filled with virtual particles that appear out of nowhere, persist for a time that is just not quite long enough for us to detect or measure them, and then they wink out of existence again. They are called virtual particles because of this ephemeral behaviour. The word virtual is meant to distinguish them from other more conventional particles like photons, electrons and all the rest, which are, well, real particles. Some people doubt the reality of virtual particles saying they are just mathematical expressions of the inherent uncertainty that is required within quantum physics. Others are convinced they are real, and that they give the vacuum of empty space-time a sort of fuzzy granular substructure. Whether or not they are real, virtual particles play an important role in quantum physics calculations, and are routinely added to Feynman diagrams to model a force that is acting at a distance. For example, If two particles with the same charge approach each other, a Feynman diagram will show them exchanging virtual photons. Those virtual photons represent the electromagnetic force that makes those two same charged particles repel each other. There is no loss of energy in this process because the virtual photons are just virtual. They appear and then they disappear. So the first law of thermodynamics, the one about the conservation of energy, is not violated. However... There is some, at least circumstantial, evidence for the reality of virtual particles that can pop out of nowhere and do violate the first law. If you position two metallic plates micrometers from each other within a vacuum, they are attracted to each other. This is called the Casimir effect. The Casimir effect could be caused by virtual particles and the physics of the quantum vacuum. The effect can be mimicked by placing two of the same plates in a medium like water. If you generate a vibration that propagates ripples through the water, you will find that bigger ripples are sustained outside the two plates than can fit between them. This creates a net imbalance of forces, and consequently, the plates are pushed together. If the Casimir effect does result from vacuum fluctuations, which are the result of virtual particles popping in and out of existence, and hence causing ripples in the vacuum, then we should conclude that virtual particles are real, and that the vacuum behaves a bit like a fluid. Excerpt 2 Human beings have to breathe a lot of oxygen, and of course there isn't a lot of it in space. You can store oxygen in tanks, but storing it as a gas takes up a lot of volume and is not a realistic solution for long-duration space flight. On space stations, most oxygen is manufactured by the solar-powered hydrolysis of water. But in case that isn't enough, supplementary oxygen is also produced by lighting an oxygen candle. 
usually a canister of potassium perchlorate. Similar chemical oxygen generators are used to deliver emergency oxygen when you are on a plane. Something goes wrong and gas masks suddenly drop from the ceiling. They are also used in submarines during longer-than-expected dives. The ignition and thermal decomposition of potassium perchlorate contained in a canister half the size of a scuba tank can produce eight person hours of breathable oxygen, and oxygen can be stored in this way for 20 years or more. So these handy, space-saving devices were in regular use on Mir, which burned through thousands of them during its 15-year flight time. Now, these oxygen candles don't actually burn with a naked flame, but the chemical decomposition of potassium perchlorate generates a lot of heat. And, of course, the candles generate a lot of oxygen, which are two of the three things that you need to start a fire. The third thing, something flammable, which started the quickly spreading fire on Mir in February 1997, was a small piece of latex glove, which one of the crew must have caught on a sharp edge when swapping out a replacement candle. The fire burned for around 14 minutes. And there's a thing about space stations. They don't have fire exits. So imagine three humans orbiting the Earth at 27,000 kilometres an hour, trapped within a small room that was quickly filling with vision-obscuring and breathing-impairing smoke. Did they bounce around the walls going, Oh my God, we're all going to die! No. They made sure every crew member had breathing masks on, fed with an independent oxygen supply, and then they put the fire out. Jerry Leninger's problems didn't end there. Mir's reputation as a dilapidated, underfunded junk heap, a reputation it didn't really deserve, was bolstered by a series of equipment failures during Leninger's increment, including the oxygen generator, the carbon dioxide scrubbers, and the <clears throat> urine processing facility. Mir also lost attitude control at one point, resulting in a potentially life-threatening spin and there was also a near collision with an unmanned resupply ship. But apart from all that, the crew completed all their mission objectives, and Leninger completed every single science experiment he had been tasked with. Not too shabby. Excerpt 3 So, just what is a transit of Venus? Well, the Earth orbits the Sun, and Venus orbits the Sun, but Venus is closer into the Sun, so its orbital period has to be quicker because of Kepler's third law. It works out that the Earth orbits the Sun at a speed of 29.78 kilometers a second, a speed that is almost exactly 8 thirteenths of the speed that Venus orbits the Sun at 35.02 kilometers a second. So for every 13 solar orbits that Venus does, Earth does almost exactly 8 orbits. So it works out that, since we are living on Earth, Transits of Venus generally happen in pairs separated by eight years, that is, eight Earth solar orbits, with either 105.5 or 121.5 years separating the last of the eight-year pair and the first of the next pair. Part of the reason that eight-year pairs of transits of Venus only happen every hundred years or so is that Venus and Earth don't orbit in exactly the same plane, even though they almost do. So firstly, since they almost do orbit in exactly the same plane, in the unlikely event that a transit of Venus does come off, there's a pretty good chance it will happen again eight years later. But after that, things get a bit out of alignment, and it works out that there won't be another transit for at least another 105.5 years. 
We have to say at least 105.5 years, because there is a slight misalignment built into the whole system, because the Venus-Earth orbital period differentiation is not an exact ratio of 8 and 13. So although the transits do generally come in pairs 8 years apart, 8 years after you get one pair, the planets just miss each other, and in 8 more years they miss each other a little more. In fact, they keep on missing each other for at least another 105.5 years. And even then, every second cycle a transit opportunity just misses, and it takes another 16 years, that is, two more 8-year cycles, until you get another alignment 121.5 years later. So between the 8-year pairs, first there's a gap of 105.5 years, then there's a gap of 121.5 years, and then it's back to a gap of 105.5 years again, and so on. But look, rather than getting too caught up in the numbers, let's try a history lesson. Johannes Kepler, one of the great astronomers of his day, and of most days since, became the first person to predict a transit of Venus in 1631. Although, as it happened, that transit was not visible from Europe because it happened over the seven hours between Europe's dusk and Europe's dawn. So it fell to Jeremiah Horrocks and William Crabtree to make the first ever scientific observation of a transit of Venus, eight years later in December 1639. After that, indeed, 121.5 years after that, the next two transits of Venus were in June 1761 and June 1769, the latter famously observed from Tahiti by Lieutenant James T. Cook. And OK, I'm kidding about the tea. Thank you for your consideration.